So glad to be with you again. Uh, my, the rest of my family is still on Signal Mountain where we're staying right now. Uh, Emily had her wisdom teeth taken out this morning. So she's a little less wise this evening, which may be a good thing, honestly. She, uh, but uh, she's, she's sort of recovering from that. Joy's staying with her. And then Caleb and Anna wanted to come, and they were sort of mixed emotions. We're, it's, a, you know, it's a haul to get here a little bit from Signal Mountain, but uh, also we've just been going, going, going. Uh, we've, we've got something almost every night of every week and during the days, too. And so I think our family's just a little worn out, honestly, so they're kind of taking the evening off with, uh, with Joy and, and Emily. Um, it's, a, you know, it's one of those things that you probably, some people hear you're back for, three-month time, and you think, oh, that's, that's a long time, and there's some respects it is. It's a long time for us to be away from our home and sort of a different schedule, but in terms of all that you need to fit in in that three months period of time, it's not a lot of time, and so um, we just got back from Dallas last week, and then we had something Saturday. We had something, obviously, here Sunday, uh, had a lunch Monday, had uh, dinner last night, uh, surgery today, this night, something tomorrow. So it's, uh, you just pray for us that we'll, uh, I don't know, have rest and peace in the midst of all that, but um, that's why they're not here, but wish they, wish they could be in a lot of ways if they had the, the energy to do it. But anyway, I'm glad to be here with you and enjoy this time together. So important to have, I think, a mission conference to really focus our hearts specifically on the thing that we're called to do all year long. And so we need these reminders. Uh, as I mentioned here, when we used to pastor, I'd heard someone say, Christians are leaky. Uh, we, we leak the truth that we know, see, would think we would know so well and have heard so many times, and we have to be refilled again with that truth so that we continue to live it out in a way that's honoring to our God. So let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to fill us up again this evening with his word. Our Father, we thank you so much for our time together tonight, and Lord, we want to glorify you tonight. In, in this evening, we want to glorify you, not just uh, sit here. I don't want to just preach. We want to give you honor by the way we do it. So I, I want to preach well, uh, filled by your Spirit, dependent upon you as I preach, so that the message is clear. I don't want to preach any error. I only, only want to preach what is true to your word. And so, Father, I pray that you would enable me to do that so that you might be honored by my preaching. And then I pray for each of the hearers, that they would be hearers of faith who receive your word by faith, who trust in it, and whose hearts are changed by your spirit so that they might glorify you even in the hearing of it. So that this is not sort of a passive thing, but it's an active thing by which we worship you in the way that the word is delivered and the, word, the way that the word is received. That we don't take it for granted that this is, a, this is an event, uh, a supernatural event that takes place when the word of God is proclaimed and the word of God is received. It's supernatural because it's the spirit who enables both to be done according to your will and in a faithful manner. So I pray that you would do that in our lives so that it's not only about how we live when we leave the doors, but it's even about how we live here in this room. And then I pray, Father, that it would extend beyond these walls so that people are transformed. And maybe someone, Father, who has been unmoved by the Word of God in years would be moved tonight. 
and maybe others who are regularly sensitive to the Word, Father, that you would continue to make them sensitive to the Word. And the result of all of that would be that we would be more engaged in the, in the mission that you've given all of us, and really the mission that you are accomplishing through us. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. So I always want to be really clear about intentions here. Uh, my intentions for this sermon is that every believer in this room, including myself, would be more committed to the mission that God has given us as a result of hearing the Word of God. That's it. I really want everyone to be more engaged as a result of hearing the Word. And I say the mission, singular, because that's really what I believe we ought to think and say when we talk about the mission. We usually call it a missions conference, or we say someone's doing a missions trip. But biblically, I think the church only has one mission. Believers only have one mission. It is the Great Commission to make disciples of all the nations. That is the mission. So I usually try to use the word in singular as much as possible. And so therefore, I want every believer in this room, including myself, to be more engaged in the mission after this evening. So I, I admit, really at the start of the sermon, that it's an ambitious goal. I mean, what could you say to people? What could I say to people that would motivate them to give their lives for the sake of Christ in the world? What would cause them to sacrifice possessions and comfort, maybe some liberties, for the sake of the mission? What could I say that could cause all of us to wholeheartedly devote ourselves to praying and giving and going for the sake of Christ's name among the nations? I think one thing that I could do that would be helpful is I could talk about statistics, such as the number of unreached people in the world. And there are many. There are billions of unreached people in the world. I could talk about the number of people without the Bible in their own language. And in fact, we had Bibles here this past Sunday where there were only the New Testament and not the Old Testament. Or there are other places in the world that have nothing at all. And I think those facts are really important and necessary and helpful. But I still don't think they're enough on their own to motivate you and I to pray, give, go, and stay. In the midst of obstacles, fears, threats, and loss. I don't think it's enough to push you over the edge. I, I think they can also be even demotivating because... You can hear the stats of billions of people around the world who have never heard the name of Jesus and be overwhelmed by it. How could you or I make a significant impact given such a large task? I mean, the numbers are staggering. Two billion unreached people. 1.5 billion people without the full Bible in their first language. And the challenges to reaching those people are huge. Huge. David Plattis said, unreached peoples are unreached for a reason. They're hard, difficult, and dangerous to reach. All the easy ones have already been taken. So what truth is really big enough to overcome those obstacles and affect a change in our lives? That kind of great change. And the only thing that I have ever thought that is big enough 
is a vision of the greatness of our God. That's it. You have to believe that our God is so great, so magnificent, so powerful, so worthy, that you would be willing to give up all for His namesake in the world. That's the only thing that's motivation enough to sacrifice for the sake of the mission. John Piper was once asked, how can a pastor motivate his people to be involved in the global mission? How can a pastor motivate his people to be involved in the global mission? And his answer was, take your people to the Bible and show them a big God. And so that's my goal tonight, is to take you to the Bible and show you a big God. So that your hearts would be changed, and my heart would be changed. And I think that's the only thing that's sufficient. Only thing that would cause us to be willing to give our lives. And actually move out of our comfort zones into really doing something. About the thing that is to be our mission. You don't have another mission. You, you don't have another mission. Everything that you're responsible for in life falls under this mission. Make disciples of all the nations. So why do you have a job? So you can make disciples of all the nations. What are you to do? How are you to parent your children? Well, you're to make disciples of them so that they're involved in the great commission to make other disciples. Why do you attend church? So that you can be a better disciple who can multiply other disciples among the nations. Why do you have income? Why do you have anything? Why are you here? It is all about making disciples of the nations. That's why you're alive. That's why you're sitting here. That's why your next breath will come into your lungs. God has given it to you so that you might be a part of this mission. And so we need to be motivated by a vision of Him so that we might realize that we need to move in this direction, the direction He's called us to. We need to believe that the God of the mission is greater than all the obstacles, even in our own lives. We need to believe that the God of the mission is worthy and that He, in fact, can do the impossible. So this morning, I want you to get a vision, a glimpse of the greatness of the missionary God we serve. And we're going to look at this missionary God in his triune actions through the book of Acts. So for example, we're going to we're look, look at the involvement of the Father, then we're going to look at the involvement in the Son, and then we're going to look at the involvement of the Holy Spirit in this mission through various passages in the book of Acts. Some people want a verse for the Trinity, and there are verses, or at least paragraphs, in which each person of the Trinity is clearly presented. But there are also entire books, like the book of Acts, where we see the involvement of each person of the Trinity. So we don't only have sort of proof texts for the Trinity, we actually have entire narratives that help us to understand the persons of the Godhead, that in fact God is three in one. And the book of Acts very clearly does it, explicitly narrating what God the Father is doing, narrating what God the Son is doing, and narrating what God the, what God the Holy Spirit is doing to fulfill the mission. So then I want you to see that the Father is sovereignly acting to fulfill the mission. The Father, God the Father, is sovereignly acting to fulfill the mission. Secondly, that the ascended Lord Jesus is reigning from heaven to fulfill the mission. And thirdly, that the Holy Spirit is empowering and transforming persons to fulfill the mission. And I believe this is 
through and through in the book of Acts. So first, the Father is sovereignly acting to fulfill the mission. So although often we approach the book of Acts by looking at the characters, Peter and the apostles, Paul, Stephen, etc., the primary focus of the book of Acts is actually on God himself, on what God is doing. So Luke, for example, highlights the sovereignty of God the Father. And he does this in a variety of ways. He does this through showing what God has done in history. He uses key terms to show us that. We'll see that in a second. And he describes the Father's involvement in the history of Israel, how he's acted. And he talks about how God has raised Jesus from the dead. And all of these things to fulfill his plan and his mission. First thing I want you to see is that there's a key term, day, in the book of Acts that shows that the Father is fulfilling the mission. The word day actually means it is necessary. Whenever the Bible, at least in Acts, talking about something that's necessary to happen, divinely necessary, according to God's plan, it uses this Greek word, D-E-I, in the English transliteration. It occurs 40 times in the book of Luke and Acts together. Almost twice as many in all, than in all of Paul's letters. And more than anywhere else in the New Testament. So I want you to notice some follow, the following occurrences of the word that indicate something must happen. It has to happen because it's according to God's plan. Acts chapter 1 verse 16. Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled. It had to happen. It must happen because it's according to God's sovereign plan which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Peter says the, scriptures, the Scripture had to be fulfilled. Or Acts 17.3, who's explaining and proving that it was necessary, and there's the Greek word again, day, for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. It was necessary, divinely necessary. It's not something that accidentally happened. It's not something that happened because there were a certain collision of accidents. It's because it was necessary according to God's plan. It was going to happen. And the many occurrences of this term in the book of Acts indicate God has a plan, sovereign plan. The Father has a sovereign plan and it will be fulfilled, it must be fulfilled, and nothing can stop it. It must happen. Nothing was going to stop Jesus from raising from the dead, and nothing's going to stop God, the Father, from fulfilling His plan that every tribe and every tongue and every nation will be before the throne of the Lamb on that day to sing praises to Him. Nothing will stop it. So we can have confidence that the Father will accomplish His plan because it must happen. But now notice how God's sovereignty is portrayed throughout Israel's entire history. It shows that the Father's fulfilling His mission if we look at the story of Israel. This is one of the reasons you need to read your Old Testaments. Sometimes I think we don't understand the character of God explicitly described in the New Testament because we haven't read our Old Testaments. And so we're kind of surprised when Paul says something about God. Because we haven't seen him in action through the Old Testament. And if we learn the history of Israel, realize there's a sovereign God acting to fulfill his plan. Stephen, for example, is being stoned. But before he's being stoned, he gives a speech in which he recounts Israel's history. Acts chapter 7, verses 2 through 46. 
And in that chapter, the term God is mentioned 16 times. God is the subject of this story about Israel. God is the one acting. Stephen says that God appeared to, spoke to, gave promises to, and sent Abraham. That's in verses 2 through 8. He was with, rescued, and gave wisdom to Joseph. He fulfilled his promise to Abraham in rescuing the people of Israel. He appeared to, sent, and used Moses to deliver the people of Israel. He directed Moses concerning the construction of the tabernacle, drove out the nations before Israel, and he was favorable to David. God is directing the history of Israel. God is the acting character in the story. In this narrative, Stephen says God's messengers were rejected. Joseph was rejected. That's described in verse 9. Moses was rejected. It's described in verse 25, 35, and 39. But despite all that rejection, Stephen says God accomplished his purposes. And here is Stephen being rejected and telling of God's sovereignty to say, really ultimately at the, story, at the end of his story, Stephen is killed, but God's purposes continue. Nothing is going to thwart God's purposes. And we learn that from the story of Israel. God's plan will not fail. It has never failed in the past and it will never fail in the future because God has directed it. His plans cannot be thwarted. He is sovereign in Israel's history and sovereign in world history. Kingdoms come and kingdoms go. Rulers rise and rulers fall. But God's mission will be fulfilled. He is directing all of history. God's messengers have always faced rejection. But God will accomplish His purposes. And what you can know is that if you devote yourself to this mission you will face rejection also. It will come in a variety of forms, whether it be insult or whether it be death or anything in between, you will face rejection. But you can know that God will accomplish His mission even through the rejection that you face. It's said in, in, history, in the ancient history of the church that the blood of the martyrs was the seed of the church. It's even through the rejection that God's plan is moving forward. Stephen's testimony and death was not in vain. And if a mission requires the giving of your life, it will not be in vain either because God will use it to accomplish His mission in history. 62 years ago, Jim Elliott, well it's more now, six, I think 63 years this year, Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, Ed McCulley, Peter Fleming, and Roger Udarian were speared to death in Ecuador, right beside where we live in Bolivia. They were trying to reach some, an Indian group there, an indigenous people group there, for the first time in history with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Steve Saint's son wrote this about his father's death. As the killers described their recollections, the killers are telling the story of what happened when his dad died, it occurred to me how incredibly unlikely it was that the beach killing took place at all. It is an anomaly that I cannot explain outside of divine intervention. Do you hear what he's saying? People speared my dad to death. And it was God who caused that to happen. Who intervened. Who's the ultimate cause of that taking place. This is a man who's still working to accomplish the mission in his own ministry and life. He says this about his dad. It's an astounding statement. 
by a man whose father was brutally murdered. He is saying that his dad's death was no random occurrence. It's part of God's plan to accomplish the mission. Do you understand the reality, the boldness that will give you in the mission? That if, if you go, or if you stay, if you face rejection, whatever someone does to you because you are devoted to the mission, you need not fear. Because God will continue to accomplish the mission even in the midst of that rejection. Even if they kill you, it will be part of God's plan to accomplish His mission. There is no fear in the face of that. It emboldens us to know that our God is accomplishing His mission no matter what occurs in our lives and through our lives. But not only but Israel's history, not only the word day, but also the fact that God raised Jesus from the dead shows us that the Father, God the Father, is fulfilling the mission. Notice Acts chapter 4, verses 27 and 28. Truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Even though wicked men carried out the crucifixion of Jesus, God carried out His purpose and plan to bring about redemption. The death of His Son did not hinder the plan of God. It fulfilled the plan of God. His Son came to earth, lived the perfect life. They killed Him. They killed Him, crucified Him. But that was no thwarting of God's plan. It was a fulfilling of God's plan. And it was according to God's purpose from before the foundation of the world. And then, God raised him from the dead. Because God is sovereign. And God is fulfilling his mission. Chapter 2, verse 24. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Simply was not possible that Jesus would die and stay dead. God the Father is accomplishing his mission. His plan cannot be stopped. And the resurrection of Jesus is evidence to you and me that God's plan cannot fail. He has already defeated Satan, sin, and death in the death and resurrection of Christ. And therefore, you have no real enemies to fear. You have no real enemies to fear. If Satan has been defeated, and sin has been defeated, and death has been defeated, then there are no real enemies for you to fear. You can proclaim the gospel even in the face of suffering and rejection because you know He is victorious. God the Father was accomplishing His sovereign plan through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And the Father's plan is moving forward. It's moving forward right now. This is one of the most exciting things to me. The Bible is not just It's not some sort of ancient history in which God acted back then, but it stopped acting now. He's acting in this moment. Even as I preach, if there's a heart that's pricked by His Word, it's God acting to fulfill His mission. And if a missionary, a person decides, I'll go there, that's God who's taking that person and putting him in this place so that the mission might be fulfilled. God is doing it. And He's sovereignly acting to fulfill His mission. It's no accident. It's not simple persuasion. It is God moving His plan forward. I want you to see now, not, it's the Father who's acting to fulfill the mission, but Acts makes it super clear that it's also the Son. 
the ascended Lord Jesus is reigning from heaven to fulfill the mission. And the introduction to the book of Acts shows us this. That Jesus is in fact reigning from heaven and accomplishing the mission. So I want to talk a little bit about the title of the book of Acts. The traditional title is Acts of the Apostles. It's likely that title was given sometime during the second century. But you probably know, hopefully you know by now, the titles of the books aren't inspired. They were ascribed later. It's an attempt to describe what's going on. And I think this one's a little bit misleading, Acts of the Apostles. There are some apostles mentioned prominently, Peter, Paul. But I don't think that accurately reflects the core of the message of Acts. After Acts chapter 1, only two of the original 12 apostles are mentioned again by name. After Acts chapter 1, only two are mentioned again by name. Some then have suggested that the book should be entitled Acts of the Holy Spirit. And it's true that the Holy Spirit is very important in Acts, as we see later on. But I still think that title fails to really live up to what the content of the book is. I think a more accurate title may be derived from the opening verse of the book. Notice Acts 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Do you hear the implication in those words? In the first book, that is Luke, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. The implication is, this second book is about what Jesus continues to do. He began to teach, that's the Gospel of Luke. He continues to do, that's the book of Acts. I think a more apt title for the book is actually the Acts of the Risen Lord Jesus. And I want to show that to you. The Acts of the Risen Lord Jesus. Acts chapter 1 introduces the book of Acts with a focus on the day of the ascension of the Lord Jesus. So there's a day here that's mentioned. And in fact, chapter 1 is framed with references to his ascension. I don't think we give enough credit or enough time to thinking about the ascension of Jesus. But note, the introductory chapter to the book of Acts is about the ascension of Jesus. So we know that when a book is introduced, oftentimes the introduction tells us what the book is really about, don't we? It's the same thing here. This chapter, chapter 1, is framed with references to his ascension. There's a repetition of a phrase. In chapter 1, verse 2, we read, Until the day he was taken up. And we read that same phrase in chapter 1, verse 22. So, there's a bookend on the chapter that says, Until the day Jesus was taken up. Until the day Jesus was taken up. Notice chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. Now, we'll skip several lines and go to the, toward the end of the chapter and read this, chapter, verses 21 and 22. So one of the men who had, have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John, until the day when he was taking, uh, taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So there are bookends to this chapter that tell us what the chapter's about. Jesus' ascension. And in between those two bookends, we have another verse, two verses, verses 10 and 11. Notice how often heaven is mentioned in these verses. While they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go 
into heaven. So, heaven's mentioned four times in these two verses. The point is not that Jesus is now absent and that the apostles must carry on the work without him. The point is now Jesus rules from heaven. That's the point. The beginning of the book of Acts is telling us Jesus is not absent from the work. He is ascended and he is in heaven and now he's going to continue to do things from heaven. So notice Acts chapter 1, verses 24 through 26. We have evidence that Jesus is in heaven and he's continuing to do things. He's not on earth anymore walking among the disciples. He's actually on a throne in heaven and he is doing things from that position. They prayed and said, you Lord who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Now, this is a passage that sometimes confuses us. Remember, we're missing one apostle by the time we get to Acts because Judas has betrayed Jesus and has committed suicide. Now they've got to pick someone in his place, and they pray to the Lord, you Lord. Now, one thing we know about this prayer is that they're actually praying to the Lord Jesus. That's the little bit of surprising thing. It's a direct prayer to the Lord Jesus. This verse 2 mentions that the original disciple apostles were chosen by Jesus. And the entire chapter is about Jesus ascending to heaven. And then in verse 21, notice this. I think I have it here, but I don't know that I have it up there anymore. Verse 21 says, So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among them. The Lord Jesus. So everything about this chapter has referred to the Lord as being the Lord Jesus. So we're talking about Jesus the Son here. And they're praying to Jesus the Son. And they're asking that the Lord Jesus, who knows the hearts of all, would pick for them, would show them who to pick, would choose for them. The entire chapter is about Jesus being in heaven. And now they're praying to Him where He is seated and they're asking him to direct affairs. You see that? Jesus chose the disciples while he is on earth. And now he has ascended into heaven. And they say, Lord, help us to choose the twelfth guy. Because Jesus now, even though he's no longer walking among them, is still making the choices of who's going to be his disciples and Matthias is chosen by the casting of lots. Jesus is still ruling over his people Choosing which disciple will join the other 11 that had previously been chosen during his life on earth. And he's controlling the outcome, the casting of lots. He's controlling the outcome of that casting to bring about the appointment. Jesus is reigning from heaven to fulfill the mission. Now notice chapter 2. Jesus acting again. Jesus is continuing to act, but this time from a, different lo- from, from a, a location not on earth, from heaven. Acts chapter 2 begins with the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit is being sent. So we had one day in chapter 1. That one day we see Jesus goes up to heaven, to heaven, to heaven. That's the first day. We have a second day in chapter 2, verse 1. Chapter 2, verse 1 says it is the day of Pentecost. So we have a day in which he's taken up, and we have the day of Pentecost. The book of Acts begins with two days, which tell us that Jesus is still Acting. Chapter 2, verse 2 says this. 
Suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. What's the importance of a sound from heaven? Well, who is in heaven? Chapter 1 said it's Jesus who's in heaven. So where's this sound coming from? It's coming from Jesus. Because Jesus is sending His Spirit. Jesus is continuing to act. And in chapter 2, He's acting by sending the Holy Spirit. And chapter 32 and 33 says that this pouring out of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost is actually evidence that Jesus is reigning. Notice this. This is my point. This Jesus God raised up. And of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are now seeing and hearing. How many times have we read that verse and not realized that what Peter's really saying here is Jesus is ascended and Jesus is continuing to act, and all of this that you see here including the mighty sound from heaven, is coming from Jesus Himself. He's not stopped acting. Jesus the Son is still acting, sitting at the right hand of the Father, position of power and authority. He sends forth His Holy Spirit. And what does the Holy Spirit do? He empowers people to be His witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth, right? Jesus is fulfilling the mission. Acts 1 and 2 narrate two days. The day He was taken up into heaven and the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out from Him, from heaven. And they are introducing the rest of the book of Acts. And they're designed to show you and me that the risen Lord Jesus has ascended and He now rules and He now directs affairs. He directs events and the rest of the book And in this period of the kingdom of God, Jesus is still acting and ruling to fulfill His mission. Right now, this moment, this day, Jesus is in heaven and He is fulfilling the mission. The reigning Lord Jesus is fulfilling the mission. And He's doing it by adding to the church to accomplish that mission. Notice... Acts chapter 2, verse 47, they were praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Again, this title, Lord, here, if you read the context, is actually referring to Jesus the Son again. The Lord, Jesus, is adding to the church. Did you know that's going on? Did you know that when you preach the gospel to somebody, your neighbor or someone else, and they trust in Christ... They repent of their sins. They trust in Jesus Christ. Did you know that Jesus is adding that person to the church? That's what's happening there. Did you realize that? I mean, you may have thought it was merely this sort of human transaction that's going on. You say some things. You persuade them. You convince them. In that moment, they're going through some difficult times. They cry out to the Lord. He saves them. But at the same time, the reason that's going on, and the reason the person genuinely accepts and doesn't turn and reject that, is because the Lord Jesus, who's ascended and is heaven, is adding someone to the church. Isn't that amazing? The Lord is acting. They're praising God because He's acting. He's adding believers to the church. I think you ought to just, I don't know, I think we ought to get cold chills when someone's baptized. Because we just know that Jesus is in heaven and He's the one who just did it. He just added them to the church. Forever. 
I mean, that ought to be overwhelming to you. He's here, here through the Spirit, but there ruling and acting to fulfill the mission. And right now, the church is growing in the world because Jesus is adding to its number. And according to the sovereign plan of the Father, Jesus is right now adding people from every nation, tribe, and language. It's all moving somewhere. In Acts chapter 5, verse 32 states, He's been exalted to the right hand of God in order to give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. Acts chapter 16, why does Lydia pay attention to Paul's message? Why in the world does this woman pay attention to Paul's message and become a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, the text says explicitly, the Lord Jesus opened her heart. That's why she receives the message. Jesus is adding to the church. We saw that in Acts 16.14. The Lord, and that's the Lord Jesus here, opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Otherwise, she wouldn't have paid attention. But the Lord opened her heart. And the ascended Lord Jesus is overcoming threats against the mission to fulfill it. Quickly, I'll run through these. Acts 8, chapter 3. Who is the greatest threat to the church during Acts in the early chapters of Acts, it is Saul. It is Paul. He's the greatest threat. He's carrying them off to the prisons. Persecuting them. Paul's no believer at the beginning of Acts. He's committed. Committing them to prison. But in chapter 9, verses 19 and 20, he changes dramatically, drastically. And from chapter 8, verse 3, which said he dragged men and women off to prison, we read this in chapter 9, verse 19 and 20. Taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. It's a dramatic change that's occurred because he's encountered who? On the road to Damascus, who did he encounter? He encountered the ascended Lord Jesus. Who's acting in that moment? Jesus is acting to convert the greatest enemy against the church and turn him to his side to fulfill his mission. So we read in chapter 9, verses 3 through 6, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, I heard a voice from heaven, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. Isn't that amazing? He's on his way to do wrong. And Jesus just doesn't let things happen. He intervenes and says, why are you persecuting me? Go into the city and I'll tell you what to do. And he's converted to the point where his mission, his life completely changes. Notice now, the Lord said to him, verses 15 and 16, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he su must suffer for the sake of my name. What an incredible change that's taken place. And we read about Paul's ministry from Acts chapter 13 until the end of the book. Jesus has converted the greatest enemy against the church, and he's moved him to the side, his side to fulfill the mission that he's given. And the rest of books, the rest of the book of Acts is the Lord Jesus from heaven now orchestrating the events of Paul's life to accomplish the mission that he has for him.
He's a chosen instrument. Even the suffering of Paul from this point forward will be ordained by God, the ascended Lord Jesus. Acts chapter 23, 11, we see this. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. When Paul receives that encouragement that Jesus will stand by him in the midst of persecution, Paul continues his ministry in the face of opposition. You see that? In a crucial moment when Paul could have turned away, Jesus says, I'm here standing beside you, and Paul keeps going because Jesus is acting to fulfill his mission. In the remainder of the book, Paul will be rescued from a plot to take his life, chapter 23, sent to Caesar in the midst of false charges and corrupt rulers, chapter 24 through 26, protected through a storm, shipwreck, shipwreck and snake bite, and will arrive safely in Rome, where he will give testimony in Rome to rulers and others. And all of this is meant to be read in light of this promise. I, standing by him, take courage, because you're going to testify in Rome. And Jesus makes sure he gets all the way through all of those things so that he testifies in Rome. Because Jesus is the one who cares for Paul so that Paul makes it to Rome to be his witness to accomplish his mission. The ascended Lord Jesus is overcoming the greatest threats against the church. He's done it with Paul. And he gave Paul ministry of proclaiming the gospel to the Gentiles and ensure he makes it safely. It's going on today. The Lord Jesus is protecting his servants so that they might fulfill the mission that he's given them. And that means he's protecting you and I. You and I can rest in that sovereign protection. Rest like we've never rested before. He protected Paul so that he could preach in Rome. You need not fear. Jesus has not just left the mission to the followers. We sometimes think that Jesus has finished his ministry, gone unto heaven. There is a sense in which he finished his ministry in the sense of the cross is complete. But this ongoing mission that the Father has is still being continued by the Lord Jesus himself. He continues to rule according to his promise, adding to the church, overcoming threats, directing the mission and the results of the mission. The ascension of the Lord Jesus doesn't mean that he's left us alone to complete the work. It means that he reigns from heaven and continues to do the work through us. Far from making us passive, this truth should make us fearless and relentless in the mission. It should give us confidence in this work, regardless of the opposition we might face. The task of missions is bigger than any one of us or all of us put together can accomplish but the risen Lord Jesus is going to accomplish it. He's going to do it. So finally, I want you to see the role of the Holy Spirit in this mission. The Holy Spirit is empowering and transforming persons to fulfill the mission. The Father, He's sovereignly acting to according to His plan. The ascended Lord Jesus is reigning from heaven to fulfill the mission. And the Holy Spirit is empowering and transforming in order that the mission might be accomplished. A clearly stated purpose for the coming of the Spirit in Acts is to empower God's people to speak for Him, proclaiming His promise. So that's one way the Holy Spirit works to fulfill the promise, the mission, by empowering believers to speak boldly. Acts chapter 1-8, you will be my witnesses when you receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. It is the Spirit who gives them the empowerment to carry it out. 
God is restoring His people by the risen Lord Jesus who sends the Holy Spirit to enable God's people to announce the message so that others may hear, respond, and participate in God's saving promises. Acts chapter 2 of Acts. I'm sorry, Acts chapter 2. Peter is full of the Holy Spirit and he proclaims the fulfillment of the Scriptures and the purposes of God in the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. And this same link between the enablement of the Spirit and the ability to speak for God is mentioned throughout Acts. Notice the phrase, filled with the Holy Spirit, in these verses. Chapter 4, verse 8. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said, Speaking of the Gospel with boldness and clarity and truth is from the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Or Acts chapter 4, verse 31. They continued to speak the Word of God with boldness. Why? Because they were all filled, it says, with the Holy Spirit. One of the evidences that you are filled with the Holy Spirit is that you speak the Word of God with boldness. And in fulfillment of God, the Father's sovereign plan, Jesus has sent the Spirit to enable people to be witnesses who boldly announce His Gospel. God the Spirit will enable you to boldly speak the good news to those who have not heard in order to accomplish the mission. So you may think, I'm not brave enough, I'm not eloquent enough to evangelize others. But I would say, He will enable you to do it. He will give you the power to do it. Just, just trust Him and begin speaking. Ask for Him to fill you so that you might speak to your neighbor or your family member, which is often so hard. Another clear purpose of the sending of the Spirit in the book of Acts is His transforming work. So He doesn't only enable us to speak with boldness, He also transforms people to accomplish the mission. So after Jesus sends the Spirit in Acts 2, and Peter's filled with the Spirit to speak the Gospel, 3,000 people respond to Peter's message and are saved. Notice Acts 2, 40 and 41. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. He's, it's the Spirit on that day who was sent, who is now transforming lives. And of those 3,000 souls, notice how later some of them are described. Chapter 2, verses 42 and through 45. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Isn't that a miracle? Here are Jews gathered together for Pentecost. Who have no interest in trusting Christ whatsoever. But here a man stand and boldly proclaim by the power of the Holy Spirit the gospel. And they are changed so much that their lives look radically different than before. They're devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching now. They're having communion with each other. They're praying. They have awe of the Lord. They hold everything in common. They're selling their possessions and belongings, giving to any who has need. All of that's the result of the Spirit transforming people. And day by day, they're attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. They received with food, their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Spirit is transforming lives, changing them completely. They're devoted to God's Word and they have such unity. 
Let me just pause for a second, and I'm out of time. Pause for a second, just as your former pastor, who can say almost what I want to because I'm going back to the Amazon jungle. Like, what are you going to do, right? And this is not prompted by anyone or anything. Uh, I haven't talked with anyone about any of this or, or whatever. It's not coming from something other than my own heart as a pastor, my own experience as a pastor. I would just say to you, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Trust in Him and depend upon Him. And let that change this church so that this church is described in similar ways to Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47. That you sacrifice for one another, that you have this unity together, that you devote yourself to the apostles' teaching, that you lay down your former way of life, and you commit yourself to one another so that the mission goes forward. Encourage your pastors. Support them. Encourage other people. Put down any kind of gossip or negative talk that's sinful against the Lord. Work on your marriage. Be here. Serve. Be involved. Give sacrificially. Forgive. Correct. Do all the things that you're supposed to do as believers. Don't complain and grumble. Don't remove yourself and isolate you from, uh, yourself from others. Don't take pride in what you do. Give sacrificially. Serve. Encourage. Uplift others. Support your pastors. Support the mission. Change things in your lives. Be filled by the Holy Spirit because you have a mission. One of the greatest tragedies to me, and I, I probably see it in greater contrast than maybe you can see it right now because of where I live. I am on the border of 170 villages that do not have the gospel. I am there in this area. They've never heard the name of Jesus. And I have a handful of small churches. And that handful of small churches, particularly the one in my town, has 20 people. And they fight over everything. And I think, you're, you're on the battle lines. You're the only gospel testimony in this whole region. And you're fighting over silly things. Let it go. Give it up. Change. Grow. Give yourself to the mission. See a big God that's greater than all those trivial things. You're on the lines of battle. Give it all up. You know that happened during World War II? World War II, they needed supplies for the war. And so people stopped doing their normal lives and they started working together and giving up things and trying to send whatever they could. They adopted this wartime lifestyle so that their soldiers might have what's needed. Do that. Abandon all the other junk and stuff. It's just a distraction by Satan from the one mission you have. Repent of it if there's sin in your life. Make it right with somebody if there's something wrong. And encourage one another in this way that you might see the Lord add to the number here day by day and the number across the seas day by day. He is worthy of it. And none of the other stuff is worth any of it. Any of your time, any of your effort. Lay aside 
the trivial, complaining, unwillingness, unforgiveness, lay it all aside. Just unite for the sake of this mission. And show evidence that the Holy Spirit resides in you. Show evidence of it. That He's working, filling you, so that you're devoted to God's Word. You're devoted to the unity of His people. You're devoted to one another. And you're devoted, ultimately, through all of that, to His mission. No one is beyond the reach of the work of the Holy Spirit. God transformed Paul, the enemy of the church. He can transform anyone. Paul implies this in 1 Timothy. Paul says, the reason Jesus saved me is so that I could be an example that He can save anyone. That's practically what he says. He, He saved the worst so that He could prove that no one's beyond His reach. Holy Spirit is powerful. All things are possible with Him. And that truth is humbling. It's humbling because we could not save ourselves and we cannot save anyone else. But it's empowering. Because no matter how weak you feel today, no matter how great the obstacles are before you, no matter how strong the rejection is, you and I can know that the Spirit is able to give us the ability to speak the good news boldly and to transform lives in order to fulfill the mission. And when you proclaim the gospel by the power of the Spirit, He will do the transforming work. Because it is God's mission after all. And the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are interested in this mission and they are committed to accomplishing it. We're not selling a product. We're not hoping people will buy it. We're not attempting to trick or manipulate people. We're relying upon the work of the Holy Spirit to do the work in other people's lives. So in conclusion, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are accomplishing the mission. In fulfillment of the sovereign plan of the Father, the risen Lord Jesus restores the people of God by granting repentance, forgiveness of sins, and giving the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit then enables His people to be witnesses who announce that fulfillment. That God's plan is being fulfilled in Jesus, and He gives them the power to speak, the boldness to speak, even in difficult settings, in the midst of obstacles. And the Holy Spirit is transforming lives so that they're full of wisdom and faith and joy. And they demonstrate genuine love for one another. The mission is God's mission after all. And He is accomplishing it. Our God is sovereign. Our Lord Jesus is reigning. And the Holy Spirit is working. How do these truths impact your life? How do they change you tonight? You might say, well, if God's doing it all, then we don't need to do anything. And that's just not biblical logic. You need to read your Bibles. The opposite's true. It's our confidence that God is accomplishing the mission that frees us and emboldens us to do what He is calling us to do. Only those who believe in a big God will be willing to risk their lives, to persevere in the midst of suffering and rejection and to sacrifice for eternal war, reward. I would not be in the middle of a forgotten jungle among forgotten people with untold obstacles and lack of comfort if it were not for the fact that I believe that God is bigger than all of those things. I I would give up. I am weak and not able. But my God is strong. 
And it's His mission. So my confidence is not in my ability to do it. My confidence is in Him that He will do it in spite of me. Through me. Apart from this confidence in a big God, you and I are just going to play it safe. Stay comfortable and remain uninvolved. John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, said this, If I did not believe in the sovereignty of God, I would have no more hope of success in preaching to men than in preaching to horses and cows. Those who trust in a big God will be willing to give sacrificially, pray for God to work, go to the hard places because they have nothing to lose and everything to gain. Mission's not in jeopardy. That's the good news. The mission is not in jeopardy. The fulfillment is sure. So I want to close with these two promises. I'll just read them. Matthew 24, 14 is a promise. This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Finally, Psalm 22, 27, 28. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. Before Why? For kingship belongs to the Lord, and He rules over the nations. God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are fulfilling His mission. We have a missionary God. And we are to be involved in the mission that He's given us with all the confidence that He will, in fact, win. That He will, in fact, accomplish His promises. That He will fulfill the mission. And one day we'll be standing there among a throng of people giving praise to Him, saying, You did it. All, glory, all honor and glory belongs to you. All dominion belongs to you. All majesty belongs to you. You have fulfilled the mission. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, help us. Help us to see you as bigger now than we did when we started the night. Not as big as you are because, frankly, we don't have the capacity for it. We're always growing in that. Our, our view of you is always too small. But I pray, Father, you would add to it some so that we might see a little bit more. If we're going to live eternally, always praising you for your glory, then there must be a lot of greatness that you have that we haven't even touched on in our minds and hearts. If it will take an eternity to praise you, you must be infinitely greater than what we can imagine. But I pray that you would give us a bigger glimpse today by your grace and by your mercy. And I ask that with the confidence in knowing that you're fulfilling this mission. And I pray, Father, that whatever hang-ups people have, we have all kinds of anxieties and fears, our inaction is a result of things in our heart that are keeping us back, holding us back from really devoting ourselves to the mission that you've given each of us. So I pray, Father, that there would be such a grand vision of you that we would repent of those things, that we would let go of those things, and that we'd finally in our lives find a freedom to be about the mission that you are accomplishing. Do that work in our lives for the sake of your glory and for our joy in it. We pray all these things in the ascent name of the ascended Lord Jesus. Amen.